Thank you, Deshaun. Be seated. Well, we are in a series, message series, called Love. Love. Uh, And we're taking uh, just four uh, simple or complex, however you look at it, slices of love this month and uh, taking a look at it. Last week, we talked about love being this accordion word and uh, in the Greek or in the Bible, uh, love is not so much an accordion word, uh, and that's why we kind of narrow it down a little bit. In fact, love is expressed in three different ways. Uh, for those of you who are wrapped and bound in the Hallmark holiday of Valentine's, all right, I didn't get anything thrown at me yet. <laughs> that is eros. That is eros. That's romantic love. Uh, And uh, nothing wrong with it at all. Uh, Yet our culture is wrapped and steeped in it. And therein lies the problem. But we are not going to address that today. Uh, Phileo, or brotherly love. Um, if you've been to Philadelphia, that's, the, that's part of where the name comes. I'm not, I've been told I've not been there only on the outskirts and not even Philadelphia directly that it may not represent well. I'm just saying. That's all I know. <clears throat> but brotherly love. But then what Jesus and what God introduces to us is something uh, quite, uh, quite different. It is the foundation of what uh, Jesus lives out. We'll get to it. And what we're about, it's agape love, agape love, this unconditional, self-sacrificing love that he calls his followers to walk and live into. He calls us to walk and live into. So while in our culture, we just use the word love, they would then separate it. And as I understand, there is another word that was used even in the culture, but not found in scripture for love. And uh, it's there too. But through that, we found and know that God's love is immovable, that God is love. It is a foundation on which we can build anything that is lasting on, everything that is lasting on. And in the the Bible story last week, Ruth's love for Naomi and Boaz's love for Ruth demonstrate this wonderful, immovable love of God. And that's that's really the core of what's transpiring there. It's just a wonderful picture of self-sacrifice, of self-giving love, and that agape love that God calls us into. Well, today. So uh, after a a meeting we had here uh, a few years ago, uh, I was pulling out and pulling down onto uh, Washtenaw or 17 or whatever you call it, and my Jeep got a flat. Uh, yep, it's, it's, it has to be the Jeep, and it gets a flat. And um, what was incredible about it is that I pulled off on a side street where there are a lot of uh, apartments and uh, a lot of student apartments and other apartments, and uh, pulled out to Jack, and Kathy's behind me, and she's like wondering what's going on, and I go to Jack up this, the, the Jeep, and you know, the, it, would be, it would be sensible to me that, uh, that they would put a jack that would be big enough, beefy enough, long enough or tall enough or whatever it is to jack up the car that you're driving. 
Now, somebody could have, I mean, it's not new to me, so somebody could have replaced it with another jack, but I don't think that's the case because it has its spot to fit in in the, in the vehicle. So I'm there trying to lift up my car, and it just, it just reaches the wheel and just, just touches it. doesn't even lift it off the ground. I'm like, oh, my. This light's already long enough. I don't need it, Tim, any longer. And so we, we call the company. We don't often... Uh, call our insurance company to take care of some of these simple things that would take them forever to get to. And that was the case. We called them and they said, well, we'll be there in a couple hours. A couple hours? You gotta be kidding. So I'm, I'm there trying to think, all right, how can, I, how can I get this jack to work and this tire? Well, you know, it was incredible. A, a, a car pulls up and a kid rolls out of it. Uh, not literally rolls out, but comes out and he's got a backpack. And he's like, hey, can I help you? And I'm like, and I was having... I was having a little problem getting the lug nuts off. Uh, you know, I, I know I'm strong, and I look like it too, but, <laughs> but this kid, he, he comes, and he's a little, little beefier than I was, and I am, and he's, he's like, I, I can't get it. So, he, I mean, I, I thanked you for his help, and we talked for a few moments of where he worked, and some stuff that was happening in Ipsy at the time, and he jetted off to his apartment, and I thanked him. I said, I, I'm sure somebody will come along. You know, we called the tow company. They're going to come and help us. And, and then, and then this, this other guy, he's, he's out walking his dog. He's like, hey. And he was across the street. Now, I'll be honest. Uh, Ipsy's not Detroit, uh, but you never know what's going to happen. All right? So he's coming at us. I mean, he's, he is walking a dog, but he's coming at us, you know, with a dog and, you know, and I'm like, oh, so what's going to happen? He's like, can I help you? And I'm like, well, I, it's not big enough. And I, by this time, I had actually, I literally did. I got the look not loose. I did it. But he probably helped a lot. He probably helped a lot. I'll give him credit where credit's due. And uh, the guy's like, look, I'll go find a brick. I'm like, Oh, I, I'll go get it. I mean, do you know where some are at? No, nah, I, I live in this apartment complex. I'll just pull one out of their landscaping and bring it. I mean, literally, that's what he's doing. I'm like, well, thanks. That's great. So he hands it to me, and, and I think he was on his way to go walk his dog. So he goes and gets it, gives it to me. I get it up, and I'm able to get the tire off and get the other tire on, and he comes back, and I'm like, so where do I put this? He's like, well, I'll take care of it. So he took care of it, right? I mean... He could, all these people could have walked on by, but they didn't. They didn't. I mean, uh, these, these people, these individuals were real good, real life good Samaritans when it mattered, right? For me anyway, uh, I was able to go to sleep before midnight, which is, I thought that was a, a beautiful thing. I think it would have been later than that. But Jesus' version of uh, help is a little more layered than, than my story. Just a tad bit more complex and definitely more challenging if you were in that context and in that day. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, as always, pull them out, and we're in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. But as we get into this, this message, which is entitled, Regardless, I want to give you a few tools that are not just for now, but are for later. Isn't that great? You like that? You, anybody like that uh, candy? Now and laters? I always loved it. It's a little tough. That was the whole point. 
right? You have something now and you just keep going and you'll have something for later. Well, this is truly a now and later type of gift for you. When you're reading scripture, I want to give you uh, five tools for the toolbox of your scripture reading. Because as you read scripture, you'll need these. One is genre, geographical, historical, cultural, and spiritual. I'll go through them again, and we're going to walk these through in this passage of Scripture. One is genre. Number two is geographical. Number three is historical. Number four is cultural. And number five is spiritual. When I, uh, when I started to get serious about Jesus and reading my Bible, uh, my youth leader at the time said, hey, you need to have colored pencils with you. Do you remember these days? I don't I mean, you can buy bottles now that are all done listless, but she would have me color in all of these different areas. I mean, not the genre. The genre was, that's a little more difficult, but like geographical and people, and you'd have different colors and color code it and uh, all of that. I just remember those days. Well, the genre, genre. Um, The Bible is actually not one book. If you didn't know that, it's not one book. And oftentimes you'll hear me refer to uh, the Old Covenant, uh, and the new covenant, and then you'll ref- have, I will refer to the, uh, what are often called the books in the Bible as manuscripts. There are 66 of them, if you didn't know, that create this whole, uh, this whole uh, library we call the Bible that are within. And the interesting thing, it was when in those 66 manuscripts, there are multiple different genres. That's why when you pick it up, it doesn't read the same way in every spot. Um, it's, It's different in every place. And so we have to ask the question, what genre are we reading today? Uh, Before we really even get too far in, because if we read it with one set of lenses in genre, like if we're reading the Gospels with a poetic lens, we'll be reading them incorrectly, okay? So there there, there is poetry, there's narrative, there's prophecy, there are personal letters, And in this particular section that we're looking at, it's historical narrative. It's historical narrative. Why do I call it historical narrative? Because Jesus is talking to a real person in a real place in a real time. He's talking to a real person in a real place at a real time, and he's relating real things. So he often, oftentimes rabbis were were found talking to people, and this was a common, commonly used uh, mode at the day. But within this historical narrative, he parks something called a parable in there. And a parable is simply this. We've talked about this before, but these can be kind of confusing, especially if we try to trace every aspect of the parable out to its nth degree. But a parable story is used to awaken the imagination to a deeper understanding of the character of God, the nature of his kingdom, and the role his followers are to play in that, in that period of time in relationship what, in relation to what he's teaching through the parable. And this was a standard way of teaching for the rabbis of the day. I mean, Jesus wasn't, this wasn't new to Jesus. Jesus was actually living within the context of his day and the context of his teaching of his day. But what makes Jesus so brilliant is that Jesus had the ability to connect what was happening in the moment with an Old Testament concept 
and to draw them together in a perfect, perfect way. And it is the same here. I mean, so much so that when the story of, when a parable is told, that he often, when he told them, there was a dramatic plot twist to them. It's like those novels you like reading or the movies you like going to where you think you know what the answer is because you're so sure and then, and you're like, I gotta see that again or I've gotta read that again. I, I, where did I miss it? Where did I miss it? And Jesus was so good at this, so good. So he brings in this idea of a priest and a Levi and a Pharisee, and this too was a common uh, parable setup. I mean, it's kind of like our jokes, right? A priest, a rabbi, and a minister going to a bar, right? It was so similar to the day. Uh, we're not quite to the picture of that yet. There you go. Yeah, thank you. So, well, Jesus starts the construction of this parable in a similar way of what they heard. Jesus changes out the cast in the parable, giving a startling and shocking story to those who were listening that day. I mean, everyone, everyone that was listening to it already had predecided who the hero was at the end of the story. Everyone, except Jesus. I mean, he changes out. I mean, the Samaritan shows up. Really? The Samaritan becomes the real hero? So Jesus introduces this, this story with the priest, the Levi, and everybody is thinking, ah, we know where it's heading. The Pharisee is going to be the hero. And yet, he doesn't become the hero. So within... A, the parable, though, we have, I've already kind of touched on these already, we have this idea of an engaging story. He's, he's attempting to draw out, a parable will draw out something that's happening. There will be an ethical example, there will be a theological teaching or a, a teaching about God, and in this case, there will be a Christological revelation or a revelation that is new about Jesus. I mean, and it is generally shocking, especially if you were a Jew in that day. So let's just tap on the geographical a little bit. When you read scripture, it's appropriate, uh, especially when you're doing Bible study. I'm not talking about devotions. When you're doing Bible study to, to keep your maps available, it is an incredible thing. And in this story, Jesus states that the, uh, the man was heading from Jericho to Jerusalem. And I thought that this picture kind of gave us a, a, a pretty good picture of what it, was, what it looked like. In fact, from Jericho to Jerusalem, there's a, if you're going from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's a 3,300-foot 3, drop. The other way, it's a 3,300-foot 3, kind of uh, up and down. And in this geograph, geographical setting, in the, this route that they would take, there would be robbers that would kind of hide out and, hang out and the interesting the knowledge of the day was that not all the priests that had to serve in Jerusalem lived in Jerusalem many of them lived in Jericho so this would have been known by them this is not unknown by them so the story plot and the and how it works its way through is rather interesting 
It's a notorious road that they would travel. Now, uh, Jesus has placed this parable of the good, uh, uh, placed this parable of the good Samaritan on this road. Not a real story, but he's placed it on this road, so they're able to imagine. The third tool in our text toolbox, if you will, is the historical background. And for us today and for our, our practicality, you just need to know the Samaritans and Pharisees uh, did not uh, go to uh, mixing and mingle type of parties. Uh, they just weren't, uh, weren't together often. In fact, there was a deep, uh, deep dislike and maybe even so far as hatred in some of, between some of them. Culturally, uh, would be the next one would include uh, lang- things like language, customs, and tradition, traditional worldviews. And what I would like to lift out in this passage in relation to the cultural is, and in particular in the parable section, is first, like I've already said, the cast of characters. Uh, the, the priest and the Levite are simply this. We need to know this. They are leaders in the temple. They provide religious goods and services to Jewish people. They are powerful, they are wealthy, and they are the religious leaders. And then you have a Samaritan who is the foreigner, as we've said, who is not like, uh, who is not liked, and who is really uh, uh, an arch enemy, if you will, of the day. Another cultural thing to note is this, in this passage that they say, the man, robbers left the man half dead. So we need to have that understanding to understand the responses of the priest and the Levite especially. You see, if the original hearers would have heard that as half dead, and you're talking about people who would have been serving or could be serving in the temple. And for our minds and our ears, we don't hear it that way. We think somebody's hurt, help them. But what they saw or what they heard was somebody half dead and there would be then ritual purity problems presenting themselves almost immediately. Like if I touch this man and he dies, I'm out of work for quite a few days. I am ritually impure. Now, in case you're reading through the Old Testament and you come to those sections about being impure, this is not a sin. It's simply this, is that God is about life and anything that has to do with death, he doesn't want it in his presence. I mean, it's just almost as simple as that, that God is about life. So if you're reading through the Old Testament and ritually impure and you know, it has nothing to do with sin, but you still have to have an offering. It is about this idea that God is continually about living and life and vibrancy of that area and that death cannot come into the presence of God. It's, it's interesting, but that's what it was about. Not about sin, but about needing the separation between things that were dead or dying and those things that are of, of living and alive. And again, for some of us, that may help us as we read some of the Old Testament passages, like, really, all of this? Yeah, because God is a holy God, a holy God who desires our obedient, loving, obedient response to him out of who he is. So for these guys, the priest and the Levite, especially this meant that they could be, like I said, out of work, especially if this guy, they hear about this guy dying. 
We need to notice too that, uh, that the Samaritan pays two denarii. Uh, two denarii were, happens to be two days worth of wages. It, it'll come into play a little later, but we need to know that, that he, he was able and willing to slap down uh, some of his own money to take care of somebody who would be aught with him. Spiritually, let's talk, look, about, look at that right now. It helps us to understand the spiritual climate of the day when we read that Jesus was tested. And you've probably heard me say, you know, why would anybody test Jesus, right? But this is the, the way they learned in the day. So it'd be like you, you'd, we'd be, I'd be talking and then you'd raise your hand and you'd go, why in the world would you say that? And I'd say, well, this is the reason. And it's a way of, of learning. And so Jesus being tested was was just normal religious banter of the day. Not necessarily disrespect, but actually it was learning. So you could go even one more step further. This, this religious ruler, this religious ruler, it may be even identifying himself with Jesus in the moment, not against him. I mean, he just asks, how, how do we know you know, how do we know who our neighbor is? How do we know who our neighbor is, right? And Jesus, Jesus just simply throws back at him, Deuteronomy 6.5, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The, how do you enter eternity, sorry. Uh, and then he quotes uh, Leviticus 19.18, you shall love the Lord, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, in all of this, then the lawyer, sorry, I got ahead of myself, the lawyer then identifies himself with the theology that Jesus is espousing, which would be in line with the Pharisees of the day. I mean, we, we may not know this, but this is what's transpiring. I mean, because, and he's going, all right, I'm in. Then the lawyer asks the qualifying question. So if we love God, and we love our neighbor as ourself. Uh, Jesus, who's our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? I mean, what is he ultimately asking? You know, I, I know I need to love my people and I need to love God, but where do my limits of love start and stop? Uh, who do I, you know, how far do I actually love? When he asks this question, it's when Jesus launches into the parable of which asks the man a question at the end. The priest and Levi come along. They pass on the other side. They totally avoid the dead man who, or the half-dead man who is likely a Jew to them too, by the way, not a Samaritan. We have to assume that that's probably in. And then enter the Samaritan in the story, the foreigner, the outsider, the enemy, He's the guy that sees and slows down and starts and is willing to engage the mess that's on the road with the man. He's the one in the story, willing to make the personal sacrifice. The one who is hated was the one who loved regardless. I mean, Jesus just turns the tide on those listening. He tells them that it's not this Pharisee, 
but the one hated who loved regardless. To, to grasp this clearly, and I've been in several different uh, groups recently where the conversation has been around, well, well, they would have never known to love the foreigner. Well, Jesus as a, has summarized the entire love, or law is love God and love your neighbor, and we understand that that was not so unique to Jesus. He was the only one... He was not the only one teaching this. Uh, And Jesus was also including your enemy to love. The one who is not like you, the Samaritan. The the one with the ethnic tension. Regardless of the years of hatred and turmoil, this Samaritan loved regardless of what had transpired. And when Jesus says, love your neighbor, we have to ask the question, what, require, what is it that requires of us? What does that love do? Because there's no formula. But I would say this, and as we've come out of January and we're now soundly in February, and we've made the note that January was kind of one of those places where we place ourselves, we posture ourselves in, in, in front of God intentionally with fasting and prayer to to allow him to love, love us and we love him. But this is the way we learn how to love others the best way. By sitting under the shower of God's grace, mercy, and love for our own lives is the only, gives us the only hope of being able to love the way that Jesus is commending them in this parable to love, is to set in and under his love. Few observations from this text for us. We need to engage in seeing people. We need to engage in seeing people. Uh, we, have to, we have to do this very simple act of seeing. And may I just add maybe seeing again. Uh, I don't mean noticing. I, I really mean seeing. The priest and Levite uh, noticed but the Samaritan, Samaritan saw. He saw past categories. He saw past labels. And he saw past the surface of what we often see. In his book, Art and Faith, the artist Makoto Fujimari says, the most, most of the time we are trained not to see, we're, we're trained trained not to see, but to categorize and move on. It's our basic survival mode. But the incredible thing is that if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will find that Jesus saw people. He saw crowds. He didn't just notice them. He saw them. I mean, Jesus saw Matthew and walked over to him. Much to the disciples he had already called, demise. I mean, Matthew's a tax collector. Uh, Jesus uh, needed to see the woman who had been bleeding for 13 years. She had, been, she had touched his hem, but he needed to see her. Jesus saw the crowds and was moved with compassion. We need to see as Jesus saw. 
Jesus' miracles started with always with Jesus seeing the other. Uh, let me ask, what would happen if we took uh, slow strolls down familiar streets? What would happen? Uh, what would we see? This last Friday, I happened to be turning onto my street, and I saw a little boy just over the curb on the road, little boy. And I couldn't grasp what he was even doing there. I mean, he had a winter coat on, so obviously somebody had put it on him and sent him out the door. Yet, upon slowing down and then pulling over on the opposite side of the road, I look back and I, oh, it looks like he has some siblings playing on a trampoline in the backyard. So I hopped out of my car, concerned that somebody would come around the corner pretty quickly, and I just asked him to, you know, you, you need to go back with your sister and brother, I think, back there. I can't remember. But if we're moving quickly, in fact, I was almost thinking, well, you know, mom and dad are probably watching him. I mean, those were my initial thoughts. But if I, I just slowing down, he, and the good thing is he, he had a conversation with me. I don't know what he said. I had a conversation with him to just ask, you know, just, you know, just step on the, go back to his siblings. But what if, what if we stop hustling from place to place? We, we walked our neighborhood one more time. We had uh, coffee with that one person just one more time and said, I'm here to listen, not to tell. What would happen? What if we looked with the eyes of Jesus? Would we be able to move past the categories we place people in and actually see the imagio Dei, the image of God in each person? Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see. I often wonder, with this question you'll see on the screen, are you and I willing to make decisions against our categories? I mean, because we all have them. Are you willing to make decisions against your categories? Do you even know your categories? Uh, another way to put that is biases, but safer. Are you willing to make decisions against our schedules that will allow us to slow down so we can see who's in front of us in the moment? Second observation we need to be people who engage in the mess. Love requires us to engage the mess. Think about this. The guy in the road was half dead. The Samaritans must have ripped up his own robe or did something to bandage this bloody mess that he came across. I mean, he, he, just, he just, it sounds like he just did it naturally, you know, in the story. Pull out the wine and the oil and, you know, just took care of them. This is what we do know. This community is messy. And the reason we know that is because we are. We each individually have our own stuff, right? We carry our own bags. So the question 
I think often it has to come to us is are we willing to allow other people to engage in our mess to see the best and what the Lord wants to bring about? I mean, think about the miracles that have happened in your life. And all of us have had miracles happen. There are certain things in your life where you're like, I don't know how this happened, but it happened and God is so good. Did they come from a clean and sterile environment? No. Most of the time, we're in chaos. We're in crisis. We're wondering. They often come from a place of mess. If we want others to experience the love of Jesus, we have to be willing to enter the mess with them. In Mark chapter 2, we're told that there are four friends that uh, ripped a, a roof apart to be able to drop Jesus or drop their friend in front of Jesus. They were willing to uh, take the heat and the hit for tearing up somebody else's house in order to bring about a miracle. Jesus, upon seeing a blind man, makes mud pie and puts it on his eyes to bring a miracle about. In John 11, these are just a few. In John 11, Jesus' best friend, we understand this now with 2020 hindsight, but you have to think about being there. Uh, Jesus' best friend lay behind a stone for four days, and he's about ready to call him out, and he had already shared that with the, with the sisters. And they're like, no, 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 he's gonna stink. Right? I mean, they're like, ah, okay I mean Lazarus not going to be able to walk through a rock out of the grave so we need to understand and embrace the mess and in order for resurrections and miracles that are stinky and messy to happen if we're willing to brave the mess we may be able to see the miracles on the other side See, if we want to even invite growth and harvest in the kingdom of God, we have to be people of invitation like, yeah, come on, bring, bring all of you, whatever you have. And it, it doesn't mean that we have the answers. It means we know the one who is willing to meet them where they're at and to walk with them in it. So are you willing to allow your living room be a place where people bring their stuff, just drop it? What do you do when you see that person again who shares their bad ideas and bad opinions at a family dinner or a community setting? I mean, seriously, right? Be it about politics, their thoughts, their opinions, religion, their thoughts, their opinions, COVID, their thoughts, their opinion, history, their thoughts, their opinion, whatever it may be, what do you do with them? Well, Jesus has told us what we do with them. We brave the mess and we embrace them. We brave the mess and we embrace them. We ask anything, we listen well. We may have to disagree uh, disagree but we will re- will love regardless that's what we're called into 
So are we willing to make decisions against our comfort? Are we willing to make decisions against our own convenience? Because Jesus calls us into this, into that place. Oh, by the way, this is a great place to promo and just kind of say, hey, if, if, you're, if you've thought about groups uh, being a part of one, it's, they're available. If you've thought about leading one, that's also a possibility. So you could screenshot that QR code and uh, find out about our groups or let me know on your Connect card and we would love to have you lead a group because you're willing to step into the mess. So the guy's half dead. He's Jewish and the Samaritan places this man on his donkey and he walks into a Jewish town. Can you, can you think about how this is gonna go? Anybody have a Western going in on your mind? Like, you know, the enemy is bringing a loved one back, right, who's half dead, right? That takes a lot of guts, a lot of moxie. I would say it's engaging in risky uh, compassion is what it is. It's engaging in risky compassion. I'm sure before he got too far into the town, he had to explain what was going on. I mean, taking this man but he was willing to do this, to, to risk, to love regardless. So love, as we all know, and maybe have had quoted, requires us to stop operating out of fear because it doesn't operate in that zone. The Samaritan gives two, uh, two days pay and then says, anything more that it costs to take care of this man, I'll pay it when I get back. I mean, this guy goes beyond, you're in my thoughts and my prayers. <laughs> he digs into his, his own, his, his own uh, pack and says, look, I, I want this guy taken care of. So are we willing are we willing to, to make decisions against our own security even? Because that's where compassion leads us. Loving regardless, it starts, starts with humility, not thinking of ourselves less and not thinking of ourselves more, but seeing the other person more. I mean, it really does just take seeing the other person and endures through the mess and then love wins when we show the compassion and step into the risk and practice this risky compassion and hospitality to others. So let me circle back for a moment. Those four characteristics of the parable, remember those? Maybe you wrote it down. Did, did Jesus tell an engaging story? Absolutely, I'm sure it captivated every single person there. Uh, was, it, was there an ethical example? Absolutely. Was it challenging? Sure. Did Jesus engage in theological teaching? Remember I told you that Jesus was just a master when it came to connecting Old Testament to current. Old Testament to current stuff. I mean, just, just astoundingly amazing. This is what blew most people away. There are three places in the Old Testament where the term, you shall love, shows up. It's a, it's a term uh, that 
We find in Deuteronomy 6, 5, we've already said, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The next one is found in Leviticus 19, 18, where it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But there's another one, and it's also found in Leviticus 19. And you shall love the foreigner who is in your land as though he or she was native born. Think about this religious ruler. He is asked, who's my neighbor? And instead of saying, don't you know the scriptures? He tells him a story and he obliterates all the lines one would ever think of creating. Ever. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. I mean, instead of Instead of just kind of telling him, he then defines love without boundaries or borders, without limits, any of that. So what's the Christological revelation? You remember the, the picture, the geographical picture that I showed you of Jericho to Jerusalem? Well, Jesus, before he dies, takes the same route. It's his journey. Uh, I mean, he follows the same journey from Jericho to Jerusalem to the cross. It's his, and in that journey, he, he, we understand that he restores sight to the blind. He has a dinner with Zacchaeus, that life-changing. And on the cross, On the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Regardless. Love, regardless. God's plan for Jesus was for him to enter our mess, to, to risk greatly for us, to love us through and through. I mean, he loved regardless. So in a day when love can be in and out in a heartbeat, especially amongst elementary kids, or when you have personally experienced divorce yourself, or in your family, and you realize that love seems to have limits. It does seem to have boundaries and borders. God is all the time telling you that his love has no limits. His love has no borders. His love is always for you regardless. And yet I would guess that some of us are still trying to find love in all the wrong places here this morning. Or we've fallen back into finding love in all the wrong places and not have found it in God himself. So this morning may be your day to say yes once again to Jesus. To say, you know what, my love has been in the wrong place. 
It's not been with you. For others of us, though, we have to think about the love that we are willing to live into. Are we willing to engage, are we willing to see first? See those around us as much as our life is hectic and busy and crammed? Are we willing to see? Are we willing to engage the mess when it comes to us, when we pray? And are we willing to risk, to take on risky compassion that may be costly, but it may be life-changing? Let's pray. So one of the practical ways of maybe considering this is who is the person that we're having the hardest time loving today? Who comes to mind? And the question then becomes how can we love them in a restorative way like Jesus is calling us to, to love our enemies as much as and as, even as more as we love others that we know love us back. Jesus' demonstration of his love for us was not working up a good feeling about us. It was the cross. It was personal sacrifice that was radical and unexpected. And that kind of love holds the potential of radically changing the world in which we live. So are you ready to live in that love? Father, it's hard for us to grasp this this radical and astounding parable that you told. And yet this, this, this parable obliterates all lines of category, So, Father, we want to love like Jesus. We want to live out love like Jesus in in sacrificial, practical, line-obliterating, borderless, limitless love. And yet, Father, we can't do that on our own. For some of us, fear is gripping us. For some, I think anger may even be grabbing all of our hearts in this moment. And so, Father, I pray that your love would pour in, driving out the fear, driving out the anger, so that that face and that name that comes to mind we miraculously only have this outpouring of love and goodwill and desire for wholeness and health as we would want to be loved. Friend, if that's where you're at, just lift your heart up to the Lord and continue to pray. Maybe you're here this morning and you have yet to say yes to Jesus or you you, you need to 
re-up your yes. Because your love that you're looking for is not God. We're reminded in Matthew 6.33 that we seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and everything else will be added to us. So maybe you need to say this prayer this morning or something that needs to roll off of your lips from you to the Lord. But here's the prayer if this is for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy, grace, and love found in and through Jesus. Save me and forgive me from my sins. I give you my life and choose to follow, love, and live for you in Jesus' name. Father, we are grateful you loved with your son's life. You, you showed us what love is. Empower us that we may follow in your love for others. Amen.